do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Oh, that's that's always a fun one. I, I really go back and forth on it um, a lot of the time. I mean, I like to consider myself a space lawyer because it's it's fun to say at parties, you know, I'm a space lawyer. Um, it's then less fun to answer the question of what that means. However, I don't shirk from the title space lawyer. I, I kind of like it. Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Dr. P.J. Blunt. Hi, my name is P.J. Blunt, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Luxembourg. I also teach as an adjunct in the LLM in Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And a third gig, I'm an adjunct at Montclair State University in New Jersey. And PJ, as a person with three different job titles in three different places in the world, you are currently joining me from Luxembourg, correct? That is correct. So you are technically my first international interview. So thank you very much for joining me. First question, do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Oh, that's that's always a fun one. I, I really go back and forth on it a lot of the time. I mean, I like to consider myself a space lawyer because it's it's fun to say at parties, you know, I'm a space lawyer. Um, it's then less fun to answer the question of what that means. But if I had to get down to it, (laughs) if I had to get down to it, I would probably consider myself an international lawyer that has a focus on space law that, that I think encapsulates what I do a bit better. However, I don't shirk from the title space lawyer. I kind of like it. Yeah, I, I like it too. But for you in particular, you actually do have do you have multiple specialties? Because I know that you have written a lot on cybersecurity as well. Yeah, so I actually have um, a book with a publisher right now on cyberspace architecture and governance. And that that is less of a, I mean, I do law within that, but it's it's actually more of an international relations bent. But yeah, I do cybersecurity and cyberspace law as well. And you you have overlapped the two, right? Space law and cyber. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that sort of became a natural part of the research. I mean, the, the, the way that I picked up cyber is that I began teaching a class titled International Telecommunications Law. And the more that I got into it, it started off as a straight telecom class. And the, the more that I worked with that syllabus, it slowly drifted into being a class about cyberspace architecture. Because 
from my point of view, we're losing the distinctions among all these different, you know, sort of traditional telecom categories, and they're they're all turning into this TCP/IP-based transmission system. And so that's I, I drifted from space law into cyberspace, and then took what I learned there, and I've, I've actually brought it back and done some various research on on space and cyberspace. So before we get too further along into these specifics, let's take a step back. Let's redefine some of the distinctions. What does space law mean to you? So what space law means to me, and and I would have to to state that I'm I'm coming from this as an academic lawyer, right? I'm I'm not a, a practitioner in the sense that I represent clients. I'm a I'm a lawyer in the sense that what I do is is read and research and, and give my opinion on the law in an academic setting. So for me, space law has always been very broad. I look at space law as, as pretty much law that that intersects with the, the the space domain in some way, shape, or form, which includes you know all sorts of things. You get in addition to the treaties, which I'm sure a lot of the the listeners are out there are, are familiar with. You know, you you have export control laws, you have telecommunications laws, you you have all these other laws that intersect with space. And so I throw a wide net and pull all of that into space law. And so space law to me really is law that concerns space. So we have had uh, previous people talk about space law as international law in a domain. They've used that sort of terminology before. It's just law where activities are taking place in a different place than they have before. So how do we define domain? Because you also use it in terms of cyber. There's a cyber domain, right? What, what does domain really mean in, when you are talking about legal concepts? So here's the thing. I mean, we often use the word domain, and, and I use the word domain a lot because my specialty within space law really is space security. And I've adopted the word domain because that's the word that the military uses. And one of the tricks with getting people to pay attention to you is to use the lingo that they use. So that's why I use the word domain. I don't think that domain is a good term when we're talking about international law, right? That the domain isn't something that we have in international law. I, I think that space is... is how to best put this? Ah, this is the, this is the difficult part. So, so the word domain is bad in terms of being a, a legal descriptor of of this this area. The problem with space is that you can't just call it a space because we've already called it space. It makes Google searches uh, impossible. And so, I actually revert back to the idea of it being a, a global commons. And I know that, that you've probably had some interviews or will have some interviews. This is a, a, an idea that's being challenged these days that a, it's not a commons because never, they never say commons in the treaty, which I honestly think is a, is a, a terrible argument because of the way that I use global commons, and I think that global commons is used in the in the international law setting, right? Global commons is usually meant as a typology of of, of areas, right? And and if you look at the Outer Space Treaty, it really rides right on the the the, the back end of the the UN Charter. And one of the things that they attempted to do in the UN Charter was put everywhere on Earth into a category, right? We had occupied territories, we had territories which were controlled by states, and then we had the high seas in Antarctica, which were these non-state territories, right? Or they, or they weren't territories, they were areas. And so you can imagine then, we've, we've got this great settlement, we have 
put sort of a territorial map on the world using international law that tells us what applies where. And then Sputnik goes up and we have to rethink the whole system, right? And so I think that global commons became this this idea that sort of encapsulates this this international law category of of an area that is does not belong to a state does not belong to any state and therefore all states have access to it and i think that a lot of the global commons pushback recently has been coming from the economic side where commons does mean something very specific in the economics field but this is by a, is a long way of saying that that Domain is probably a bad word. I, I think that, that you need to be using a word that indicates within the international law context that this is a, a region or an area that falls outside of any state jurisdiction. And my way of doing that is usually calling it a global commons, just a shorthand for that. This then trickles down to one of the problem areas where there's a difference, right, between performance-based, the way that our object is performing, which all of a sudden gives us a definition of where space is, or literal measurement-based definitions of space. We talk about Kármán line, 100 kilometers up. I mean, yeah, there's there's a difference, but but when you get down to it, I mean, there's there's a bit of a legal fiction going on in this whole delineation debate, right? It's it's, you know, we don't know where space begins is what you always learn in a law class on this, but scientists can pretty much they can get pretty close to telling you where it begins and ends. I mean, it, there's a there's an ambiguous area in there, but I mean, we we can define it scientifically if we need to, right? But it, you know, the thing about what is in space and what is not in space, really, it, it depends on geopolitics. And, and I think this plays back into what I was just saying about the UN Charter and this idea of territory that, that comes out of that so concretely, is that to define space means either that we, we gain territory or we lose territory. And this is one of the reasons why space becomes defined functionally uh, or, or through a, the functionalist approach at, at international law is because if you think about it just from the, the, the basic you know, realist desires of a state, states protect their territory. I mean, look at some of the silly things that states have done to protect a rock out in the ocean, right? Well, that's their territory, right? That is, that is the, 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 the core of your sovereignty under international law is that you have territory. And so, you know, if, if we are going to go up there and say, well, look, let's put it at the 100 kilometer mark, states are concerned that we might be putting it too low and that they are losing essentially territory, right? They're losing something they have sovereign control of. And I don't think that it's the sort of thing that we are going to see a legal resolution of at any point. I mean, I, I think that one of the, the kind of fascinating things from the history of space this is tangentially related but hell why not is is the the idea of the fractional orbital bomb and this was a, a weapon that was developed by the soviet union and it was a, a delivery system and so an, an icbm at the time the the shortest way from the soviet union to the u.s and vice versa was over the pole right because we're both in the northern hemisphere and so the u.s sets up its its silos in minot north dakota we have a, a pretty good system for knowing what's coming over the pole right we've got 
good situational awareness there. And and our ABM system was or was going to be deployed and in Minot. I don't think they ever actually got anything useful up there in, in, in that way. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, is like, well, all right, well, let's we can put something in orbit and bring it around the southern pole and then just deorbit it you know, wherever we want. They tested this a couple of times. And their argument was, well, that thing never completed a full Earth orbit, and therefore it was not in space, right? Which is a totally functionalist argument, right? It's orbiting. It was in an Earth orbit. If left alone, it would have completed the Earth orbit. However, their argument was that it didn't go all the way around, therefore it wasn't in space. And I find the interesting thing about this is the U.S. agreed with them. Right, they're hmm. they're making this argument, and the U.S. comes out, and their their diplomatic response was, "Yeah, we 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 agree. That's not in space. That's that's okay." And I mean, this is partly Cold War politics. I'm sure that the U.S. was thinking, well, "You know, we can build one of those really easy as well, and this will this will be good for parity." But it also says a lot about the conceptualization uh, conceptualization of space in the geopolitical realm, which I, I think is a really important thing when you when you begin to think about where space begins and ends. It's not has nothing to do with what the scientists say. It really has everything to do with where states want to think that it begins and ends. And and that becomes a really powerful thing in, in thinking about that 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 domain or area or commons or whatever you want to call the place. So you have talked about international politics, economics, Cold War history. You seem to have a very diverse interest. How did you first get interested in space law and policy as, as a topic and let alone as a career for yourself? Uh, okay, so I'll put this story out in public, I guess. So how I ended up doing this is... And I'll, I'll, I'll start with a. So I once was at one of the International Astronautical Congresses and afterwards was still very new to the field. But afterwards, I end up at this this large dinner of space lawyers like, you know, we got three tables in a, you know, in a row. It's I don't know. There's more than 20 people sitting at this table. It was, But it was an informal dinner. And at some point. I mean, people had been drinking wine, as, as they are wont to do, and somebody tinks their glass and is like, you know what we should do is everybody should go around the table and say how they got into space law. And as they went around the table, everybody stood up and was like, I've been interested in space since I was eight years old, and this is my dream, and blah, blah, blah. And it gets to me, and I, I won't. I mean, I was obviously interested in space as a kid. And in high school, we did a whole space thing simulation. But, like, space wasn't, like, mainstream. I wasn't, I wasn't my, my, my thing. But when I was doing my LLM uh, at, at King's College, I had the opportunity to write a thesis. And I chose to write my thesis on space law. Uh, and for the worst of reasons, because I thought it would be amusing. <laughs> no lie. And so I wrote my thesis on, on jurisdiction in outer space later published in the Journal of Space Law for all those curious readers. And after I finished that, a job for Research Council at the National Center for Remote Sensing Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law opened. And I thought, hey, I've got a pretty good writing sample. And as they say, hey, now, now I'm an expert. I, I Yeah, so I just kind of fell into it. I, I impulse bought space law. <laughs> but it's worked out well. I, I, I like it. Uh, what a! I can't believe that just got drawn out of me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's one of the, we have people, I've had people talk about 
some inspiration going, like you said, as far back as to when they were kids and they were reading. And some people talking about having already had a full career and then all of a sudden just deciding to change it up. But you were you were already doing an LLM, so you had already gotten your JD here in the U.S., and then you were getting an a, a advanced legal degree, and you said King's College in London. Yes. And then and then you were going to be once you applied for this job and got it, you were going to be traveling back to the U.S. If you hadn't if you hadn't written about space law, what what were you doing at the time you were at King's College getting your LLM? What were you thinking you would do afterwards? So my other classes were all security stuff. I was doing the law of armed conflict. I was doing international criminal law. I was doing, you know, a theory class. I really thought that if if I had the opportunity to pursue an international law career at the time, that I would most likely be pursuing something along those lines, something that that played along the lines of of international peace and security. And I, you know, I'm not gonna lie, I was a student at the time and did not have a real clear idea about how that was gonna pan out or <laughs> what exactly I would end up doing, but 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 that is something that I brought into space law. I mean when I when I finally sat down at the desk and was like, okay, I'm I, I do space law now I immediately pulled on that other background, and so if you look at my early stuff and, and my later stuff, there is a strong, strong influence of, of international peace and security as well as national security law. In fact, my first several articles really go into the law of armed conflict stuff in, in, in pretty good detail, and so that was something that, that fed into space law in a, in a, in a way. And, and actually, I will say that the other thing that this did for me is that by coming at it, earlier on, yes, I thought that I was a space lawyer, and I said that I could consider myself an international lawyer that specializes in space law. And that was really the way that, that I approached it, right? I had been trained in international law, and I saw space law as a branch of international law. And so that is something that I think has played out throughout my you know, written works yeah one day they'll all be in a book and you can buy it it'll be wonderful but i think that that's something that that plays out as a theme in in my writing is that this is a branch of international law we have to really think about it within an international legal and political context it's not just space is cool peaceful purposes all the time because we're pretty sure that if it becomes expedient for states to burn down peaceful purposes they're gonna do it No, because I, I was going to say, you, you first described it as on a whim writing about space law and that leading you to your first postdoctoral or your postgraduate work. But you, you are still talking about all of these subjects. You've, you've just combined it with space law. So everything that you did up to and in that LLM program is still very valid to the work that you are doing today. I I would agree with that, and and I would actually I'm making a pitch to to anybody out there that's listening that that teaches international law. I I worked with a, a handful of different people putting together international law syllabi, and they always I'm always like you should put a space law day in there. You should discuss space law, and they're like why? And nobody cares. Blah blah blah. I'm like well, first of all, it's it's actually really important when you think about a lot of the 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 things that space does. The international law of space is is very important, but 
I also think that space law, from an international legal perspective, not as a specialist in space law, but if I'm an international lawyer and I'm teaching space law, space law is so useful because it has so many exceptions to the normal rules. And if you really want to begin to talk about, you know, the reason that we have certain rules in certain, you know, areas on 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 the planet, and then how those changed when we we decided to write up a legal regime for space. I mean, it is a fantastic teaching moment. And so, as an international lawyer, I mean, space law is is actually quite fascinating, simply because it's it's as though the drafters of these treaties were like think sitting around and being like, what else can we throw at them that's weird and new and different? And, and I, I mean, it really like it, the Outer Space Treaty is crazy when you read it compared to other treaties. It's it's it doesn't match. And I think that's why space law is so much fun as an international lawyer is because it's just it's weird. That Yeah, that's a great pitch. <laughs> Teach space law. It's weird. It's weird, man. <laughs> so how are you involved in space law now? You've already talked about being forgive me if the title's wrong, adjunct professor at at least two universities? Two universities and, and a postdoctoral researcher at one that, that specializes in space law there. Outside of the wonderful world of academia, how am I involved? So, well, I'm, I'm an active member of the International Institute of Space Law. I sit on the, the board of directors for that, and I also edit the proceedings of the International Institute of Space Law. The 2018 version comes out in August. Run to your local bookstore and buy one. So I, I, I do that. Um, I used to be editor-in-chief of the journal Space Law. I have since shed that responsibility, but I, I still work with them as needed. I do a bit of consulting here and there for different things. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I just sort of wherever my fingers get into the pie, I, I get my fingers into the pie on Space Law. I was just thinking, is that why you are involved in space security? Because there's always going to be a market for security. I mean, I wouldn't say that's why I'm involved in space security. I would say that the reason that I'm involved in space security is is really the idea of international peace and security and how we maintain that balance fascinates me, in particular in the post-World War II context of you know, maintaining this this weird balance of not having states go to war with each other in light of the fact that we now have like really, really massively destructive weapons. I mean, it, it sounds bleak and terrible, but like, I don't know, I love reading about the weird, you know, things that states have negotiated in order to not blow each other up. I mean, the ABM treaty in and of itself is just ludicrous if you think about it. What we're going to do is sign a treaty that if we go to war, we're both going to die in horrible nuclear holocausts is a weird thing to think about, but it actually worked for a good long time. And so, you know, it's not so much that there's always a market for, for security. I literally just find the, the security aspect to be the most interesting of the, the, the aspects. And, and I think that we do see a lot of crazy ideas come out of the security sector, which are fun to, to analyze. But I also think that Security is important when we're talking about these commercial operations, right? Because one of the things and maybe one of the reasons why I do sometimes use the word domain is if we're thinking about space it is a strategic domain, right? The first use or the first you know, things that we, we realize really saw from space are one, that it's a great way to, to deliver a nuclear weapon across a, uh, from one continent to another. And two, that it allows us to get strategic information about other states via remote sensing satellites. And so it is a 
primarily a strategic domain. And so when you have companies that are just saying, well, we should be able to do whatever we want up there, right? We don't need these laws. You're like, well, yeah, except for the fact that we are actively trying to keep from blowing each other up. And if you go up there and start goofing around, i.e., you know, let's send some swarm satellites up there that nobody can see where they are and we just won't, we won't, you know, get a license from anybody. That actually, you know, it's it's terrible in the idea that, okay, those swarm satellites could have run into something, they were unlicensed, that would be bad. It, well, think about the next step. They could have run into another military sat, not, I don't know what orbit they were in or whether there were other satellites in that orbit. All you science and engineering people get off my back. But, right, if that happens and it causes a false alarm or it, it causes a state to think that their satellite has been attacked, that's really problematic. And And so, the military security aspects of space are really interwoven with all of these commercial aspects. And I, I think that's something that doesn't get paid a lot of attention to when we're talking about opening up space to commerce. Along those lines, what is, in your opinion, the biggest misconception about space law in the general public? Lightsabers. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I... What, what, I think people have a pretty good idea of how lightsabers are supposed to work, actually. Well, they know how they're supposed to work, but are they legal? I mean, uh, it's like it's a flashlight that'll cut you in half at the torso. No, I, I, I think that the, the biggest misconception is that it exists at all. You know, I, I, I said earlier, kind of in jest, that it's fun to call yourself a space lawyer until you have to explain it at a party, and I, I meant that in a very real sense. I, I used to have a, a friend who we'd, we'd go to a party and, you know, there'd be a large group of people talking and he would just throw it out there. He'd be like, yeah, PJ's a space lawyer. And people would get all, you know, googly-eyed and be like, oh, really? What's that? And I would begin to explain it to them. And as you can see, I like to talk about this. And I would slowly watch people drift away until there's just this one poor soul there that, that's the last person making eye contact with me. And I'm still rambling on like a nerd about, you know, this and that, which led me to come up with the the uh, two minute version of space law, which is the party version now. But I think that the you know, when you when you get into what the general public knows and doesn't know, like they, they it's interesting because most people are like space law. That's a thing. And you're like, yeah, well, I mean, you know. We have a lot of stuff up there. Probably somebody is regulating it. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. But but I think the most interesting thing about the general public is is just an informal survey. The, the most common response that I get is, oh, you're a space lawyer. Is that like who owns the moon? Which I find to be a, a fascinating thing. And it is obviously one of our the questions. But it seems like at the general public level, there's no recognition that we have a bunch of satellites up there that do things on earth for us every day and it would be absolutely ridiculous if all of those things were up there and there was no legal regime governing them right and most people have never put that connection together in their heads and so they're they're shocked when they hear about this idea of space law and you're saying well you know your cell phone it's connected to a satellite sometimes it's you know you might want some law there that satellite could be doing anything to your cell phone or you know probably not the satellite doing things to the cell phone. Um, but, you know, it's it's this weird, I think there's a weird misconception that it is actually a lawless place. And and I find that to be kind of fascinating and, and a fun thing to say, you know, you're, you're wrong. It's actually a lot of really boring administrative law. 
And yeah, I mean, administrative law is not necessarily boring. I've interviewed at least one administrative lawyer, but I think maybe maybe to a sure. party guest, it would be boring. Riveted. Yeah. They were riveted with it, weren't they? <laughs> but no, that's an interesting idea. I do agree that people seem to skip satellites and go straight to who owns the moon. I think I think if you literally did a family feud question, like that would be number one, right? Survey says most people ask who owns the moon. Do you do you have any idea where that comes from culturally? Because I remember you did you co-wrote a paper talking about the space race as recorded in American Southern music. If yeah, I remember correctly, I do that paper. <laughs> so you you have sort of you've done at least one cultural study. I mean, did it is that just like what got ingrained in the popular culture was the moon? It's it's the moon, and I'm going to ignore 50 years of satellite development because it's the moon. That's the first thing I think about. I actually I, I don't think it's that, and and I I, I actually th I think I talk about this in, in an article that's been forthcoming for forever, but it might eventually be out in the, the New England Law Review. I think it is. I don't think it's that. I, I I do think there's something to the fact that we can all see the moon. We look up there and we're like, hey, that's that's a moon. Wow. It is. It does interest me that nobody ever says like, who owns the sun? But you know, what, <laughs> somebody in Italy did though. Oh yeah, yeah, I guess you. Can. I mean, you know, follow the security interest, get you, get yourself a whole son. But yeah. I think that culturally, it 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 flows from uh, the fact, and I think this is a very telling thing uh, uh, about, definitely about Americans or the the Western conception here is that property plays such a big role in our legal regime, right? If you talk to somebody about law in general, and and in particular, in the American context, it, 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 it very often always comes back to, well, that's mine. That's my property, right? Ownership's 10, 10 percent of the or 90 percent of the law, nine tenths of the law. That's the same. You go. Yeah. I was going to get there. It's math. I, I, it's not my strong point. But but I think that the role of pop, uh, property within the legal system is is a fascinating one. And I think that's why people jump directly to that. I mean, it, it, and, 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 you know. We actually, I think, uh, in, a, in a side conversation, have, have talked about this before, this idea that, that we're seeing the sort of resurgence of, of John Locke within the, the, the space resources debate, I think is fascinating because I think it, it, it plays to this idea that property holds a, a, a central role in law. And, and I think that that does then play back into space law in terms of you know, international space law from the Cold War from the 60s, part of the Outer Space Treaty and part of why we have all this nebulousness in Article 2 is this fascinating moment where we're trying to write a treaty between a socialist communist state and a capitalist democratic state. And the reason that Article 2 is nebulous is because you certainly wanted to avoid the word property in there because the conception of property between the two was so dramatically different that if you nodded either way, one of them wasn't going to sign the treaty. And so, long yeah, back to your, your 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 question, yeah, I think culturally it comes from the role of property within the legal system itself, which is why people go, eh, well, like, who owns the moon? And before we move on, I, your perspective, you've worked in the international area, and you talked about the difference in conception of property back in 1967. In 2019, is it a more global 
agreement on the conception of property or is there still significant difference in international relations? I think there's still significant difference. I don't think that the difference now is so much, you know, U.S.-style capitalism versus Russian-style communism or Soviet-style communism, which was a very clear and distinct line, right? I mean, those were definitely different. I, I think now we are seeing more of a, a Western-style capitalism, uh, to use a nebulous phrase there, versus sort of an Eastern-style socialism slash capitalism. You know, obviously China has this, this weird system that that, I mean, if you go to China, you walk around, you're like, this place is, is very capitalist here, right? I remember I was walking around Beijing one day, and I turned the corner, and I'm looking at a Lamborghini dealership. And I was like, oh, interesting. At the same time, right, it is, it's this idea of Chinese characteristics. It is still a socialist society, and still in name, at least a communist society. But property there is still conceptualized much, much different from the way that we conceptualize it in the U.S. or within the Western system itself. And I don't think it's, it, it, you know, I don't think that China is the only place you have to look for this. I, I often like to use the example of Scotland. Scotland essentially has a law that if you're out in the highlands walking around, you are more than welcome to walk across any pasture that you find as long as you close the gates. And if you need to camp somewhere, you can just set up a tent as long as you're not in the person's yard, right? You're not trespassing. And that is a, a conception of property that we don't get in the U.S., you know? You're camping in my pasture. I'm getting out my 12-gauge, you know? It's, that's the American response. <laughs> but I think that, that the idea of, of property is one that is unsettled at the, the international level in terms of having a specific definition. I don't think that that is the biggest hurdle to identifying the idea of property within the outer space regime, right? We've done it in the, the, the high seas regime, right? We, 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 we know how to do it there and that, that's fine. So there's nothing that keeps us from doing it at the international level, probably any more than just the fact that, that states don't want to move forward on any sort of international agreements. All right, so let's go to the lightning round and ask for advice that you could give to our listeners. And I'll start by asking, what advice would you give to anyone who is pre-law or pre-graduate school but is interested in space law and policy? I would say read, 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 read. Read. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Like, if you're pre-law and or pre-graduate school, you are very likely in a place that's not going to have a class on space law, or space policy, or any general space class. And so, I would say that a lot of the burden is going to be on you to to orient yourself. And I mean, one of the things that I see is I, I have all these students that that show up at law school and they're like, well, I want to be a space lawyer. And I'm like, great. What have you been reading? And they're like, nothing. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, kind of wasting your time there. You know, it's it's one of those things. If you if you want to do the field, if you want to be in the field, you have to learn to talk the talk. You have to learn to, to stand on your hind legs and bark like a space lawyer. And the key to that is is literally reading as much as you can and, and trying to focus that reading on not on on. on getting a well-rounded idea of the conversations that are happening. One of the things that we often see is, you know, somebody will be like, I want to do space resources, and they'll go out and read a bunch of things on space resources. 
that's not going to fill you in on the field in general. You're going to be so narrow that that when you begin to talk, you're going to find, I don't have no idea what these people are talking about because I never thought about launch law. So I would say you you set up a set up a Google Scholar alert and read as much as you can coming in because it, the more versatile you are in these conversations, the the better off you'll be as you are then, you know, later on trying to find a job in this. And then what advice would you give to students who are currently in law school or in graduate school? Because that course load, they already have a lot of reading they're doing for other classes. So is there any way that they can still keep track on being involved in space law? Yes. Suck it up and read more. Um, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, right? Like, I, I don't I did law school. Everybody's like, it's so much reading. I'm like, I, you know what? I, I, I always had outside reading going on in law school. It's just the only way, right? If you read cases all the time, you become a robot. You look for torts everywhere, and it's not fun. But yeah, if, if your goal is to do this, you have to read in that area. And I understand that law school reading is tough, but you, 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 have, to, you have to stay up to date in what's going on. I would give two other bits of advice. If you're a current student and you're not at one of the places that does space law, you need to take the classes that, and, and if you're at one of the places that does space law, you need to take classes that apply to space law, right? The international space law class is great fun. I love it. Don't get me wrong here. It's, and it's essential. You need to understand these treaties. You also though, need to understand administrative law. You need to understand contract law. You really, if you have the opportunity to take a class on government procurement, take that class because that will be a much bigger asset to you than being able to explain the intricacies of Article 2. So, so make sure that you pick classes that have applicability to this realm, because those are the things that are going to matter later on in a job interview. And the final piece of advice that I would give to current students is write. You know, if you are in a, a, a class that allows you to do a paper, you should do two things. You should shoehorn that paper into this area if you can. Obviously, it's difficult, right? But try to shoehorn the papers into that area and write them as if they're going to be future law review articles. And that way, when you finish the class, you have this thing that is ready to go out and be published. And that is really good for you, right? Yes, absolutely. Sorry. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I, I did my, I did my law review note on space law. And I applied to as many different journals at my school as possible and already had in mind how to tailor that journal's theme into space law, whether I got onto the International Law Review or the Government Contracts Law Review. I, I knew I would have a topic ready to go. There you go. I mean, that's exactly what you should be doing as a student. And I would say, like, if you're listening to this and you're a student that's not into space law, you want to do something else. Take the same tact as to whatever you want to do. If you want to be a contract lawyer, write all your papers on contract law. Can't imagine it, but uh, some people might want to. And then what advice would you give to professionals who have already graduated, who have already started a career in law or policy, and they want to make a change? They're not currently involved working in space law and policy, but they want to work towards that. So I would say, again, read. Read, 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 read. Sound but like also, a professor. I, I, that's, that's sort of my shtick. <laughs> I would also say, so one of the, the pieces of advice that I give 
my students that, that want to go and be a space lawyer. And, and as we all know, the, the space law field is one that there's not a ton of jobs right now. It's, it's, they, there are more jobs and the more startups that get going, you know, that's good. But I, I think that you have to think of it in terms of, of playing Frogger. Um, you know, the little game where you're trying to cross the road and you, you get to the river and you have to jump from a log to a lily pad to a here to a there. If you really want to change over into space, the thing to do is to think about what might get you there, right? If you have the opportunity to go and do government procurement for an aviation firm or an aerospace firm in general, those are skills that you're going to learn there that can be applied to space. So if your long-term goal is to make it over to space, that's probably a good lily pad to jump on. Or doing something in the administrative law realm is probably a really good lily pad to jump on. Whereas, you know, if you are thinking, I don't really want to get to space, but I have this job to go and work for, you know, child protective services, likely that's not going to be a good lily pad for you if your dream is space. Might be a very good job though. Don't don't take that lightly. But yeah, I I, I hate to give advice to professionals since, you know, just a lowly academic <laughs> but but i would say that you 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 have to think strategically about what job you're going to hop into next in order to find your way closer to the field I, no i think i think that is still very good advice and i will make sure and share a youtube video of frogger for anybody who's not familiar with that I am of the age that I remember frogger but i'm pretty sure i remember like frogger already being retro so I won't ask you what what phase of Frogger you're referring to. It's just like pearls before swine. <laughs> well, on that note, PJ, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No problem. It was, it was fun. I, I appreciate uh, uh, you know, inviting me onto the show. Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.